It was a bright Tuesday morning on the 14th of September, 1999, and eight coachloads of America's most passionate football fans were about to set off on a six hour, 400 mile trip south from New York to Ohio. Their team was set to play in the final of the country's oldest football competition, the US Open Cup. But winning the trophy wasn't the only reason for their journey, for they wanted what they had long been denied, a place in the country's glitzy new Premier Division, Major League Soccer. Wearing t-shirts proclaiming them to be Major League Soccer's worst nightmare, the fans and their team were set on embarrassing those who'd held them back from their American dream. There's so, so much heart, and it reflects the heart of the people of the city of Rochester. And I got a message for you if you're listening, MLS. We belong in your league. We deserve to be there. Come to Frontier next year. We will support this team. We'll be great for the MLS. Right on This is the story of the Rochester Raging Rhinos. From the makers of NPLH magazine, this is Journeys, the audio series exploring the unusual untold corners of football, along with unique takes on those more familiar. You're listening to If You Can't Join Them, Beat Them, the story of the Rochester Rhinos, America's true underdog. Written and narrated by Alexis James. Major League Soccer was in its fourth season, following a fanfare arrival in 1996. The league aimed to nurture the best of its homegrown talent, including Alexi Lalas, Brian McBride, Brad Friedel and Kobe Jones. It also aimed to broaden its global appeal by showcasing household names from further afield, like Georgie Campos, Carlos Valderrama, Roberto Donadoni, and even former England keeper Chris Woods. To take its next step in the United States. The building blocks have been laid for the most ambitious coast-to-coast professional soccer league in American history. The 10 founding clubs of the MLS were deemed the gold standard of North America's newest assault on the global game. Anything that suggested otherwise risked damaging a nascent brand. There are very few times where you feel the chill go up your spine. This is perhaps the biggest day in the history of US soccer. And we are underway. Gazing at its new sibling was the A-League, the second tier of the US soccer pyramid. Filled with part-timers and old-timers, its franchises weren't glitzy enough to walk the red carpet of the MLS. And due to the closed clique nature of American sports, promotion was not an option. Unless a club's name was on the list, they weren't coming in. And at the front of the queue was Rochester. The city had earned its soccer pedigree two decades earlier when the Rochester Lancers won the North American Soccer League back when the NASL counted George Best, Helly, Bobby Moore and Johan Cruyff among its glittering roster. It meant that when the Raging Rhinos formed in 1995, Rochester had a ready-made fan base lured by the warm pull of nostalgia. Soccer basically in Rochester, you know, pe- people lived and breathed that you had a lot of ethnic uh, flair to it because you had a lot of Italians here, a lot of Germans, you know, so you had a good mix of uh, uh, people that, that followed the game in the 60s and 70s and their children. That's Canadian striker Pat Urkeley, who played for the Lancers between 1978 and 1980, before returning to coach the Rhinos for their opening season in 1996. You know, I would come to games and there'd be people that had pictures, uh, you know, of me when I when I was 18. And so you could tell that, you know, it was from that generation. 
and they wanted to see soccer back here. So we, we caught on just like the MLS caught on at that point, although we, we may have been actually stronger in, in certain communities. Rochester's home pitch was the cosy baseball diamond at downtown Frontier Field. Sneered at by rivals for not being a standard soccer pitch, it nevertheless proved a popular first home for the Rhinos. So there was talk of us going to MLS, um, and that pretty much started pretty rapidly. And we were drawing, out drawing uh, the MLS in, in many cities. Our capacity really was 13,000. Our opening game, we had 15,700. We had, you know, almost 2,700 standing room only. Um, so, so we had, you know, that was our opening game at the new stadium. We averaged, I think at one point about, you know, full capacity. Pat's challenge was to put together a squad that would blossom in the Flower City and keep the turnstiles churning. You know, I would say that uh, my initial year was tough because everybody wanted to be part of the MLS. Um, and it, you know, we were a month away from, uh, starting our season and I, and I think I only had like three players signed. <laughs> so I was able the the fortunate thing about back then when I started uh FIFA in the second division didn't have stipulations like they do today so you could release players and and sign new players um uh, so I went about making changes throughout the course of the season with the best outfield players in the states heading for the MLS Pat instead turned to the established indoor leagues agreeing flexible contracts with some of the National Professional Soccer League's top players. Remarkably, it almost paid off. The Rhinos made both the Championship Playoff and the US Open Cup Final in their debut season, before their indoor specialists were required to report to their NPSL paymasters. We had a rough start, but then we turned it around mid-season and we went on a tear. I mean, we went to the final of our league play and also the final of the US Open Cup. You know, we played, unfortunately, some of our players were playing with other teams. So they left for about a month and then came back for the final against Washington. I mean, we ended up losing 3 nothing, but, you know, it was closer than what the score indicated. Losses in both finals wouldn't detract from the fact that Rochester seemed destined for the top. Over the next three years, the Rhinos claimed two divisional titles and one championship. Cheered on by a devoted crowd that continued to rise year on year, their average attendance surpassed that of several top flight sides. Meanwhile, the MLS continued to expand, handing invitations to franchises in Miami and Chicago. Yet still Rochester waited for their chance to iron an MLS logo on their yellow sleeves. Pat used this to his advantage, moulding a competitive squad no longer hamstrung by other commitments. No, it was a good veteran team. I mean, I think today that maybe, I mean, FC Cincinnati may have had a somewhat of a similar team. Uh, because I basically was able, because of the, the financing that I was able to provide for some of these guys, um, you know, we were getting the guys that were on the cusp of going to MLS, but decided, okay, I'm not going to make as much because they had some salary cap issues and, and basically minimum salaries, that sort of thing with the union. You know, and we were providing housing, which they didn't provide. And so I was able to get some of these guys that were like, OK, let me go to Rochester first and prove myself. Pacey forward, deadly Doug Miller and South African midfielder Lennon Steenkamp were two indoor stars persuaded that a better future could be had on grass. Darren Tilly, a bruising English centre forward, was persuaded to join from A-League rivals Montreal Impact, while Trinidad defender Craig Demham 
arrived when his Colorado Foxes club became a victim of the Colorado Rapids MLS expansion. Pat cast his recruitment net close at home too, persuading Canadian keeper Pat Onstad to end a 10-year career north of the border. The squad bonded immediately, cemented by one common belief. Our team had an attitude. You know, there was some, we had a little chip on our shoulder because we already thought we were an MLS team. Even the fans did. Rochester refused to be ignored. If being the best team in the second tier wasn't good enough to turn heads at US soccer, then there was only one thing left to do. If we can't join them, beat them, was the attitude. Rochester wanted to lift the US Open Cup, America's oldest football competition, and defeat every MLS team that stood in their way. If you can't join them, beat them. The US Open Cup was first played back in 1914, and it's the closest thing the States has to the FA Cup. Although it enjoys very little coverage outside of the USA, its roots are entwined in the history of the game across the Atlantic. 100 years, the pinnacle of being the best football club in the United States has been winning the U.S. Open Cup tournament. Fans and their favorite players from all corners and crevices of this great country have had their moments of glory. Rhinos fans were confident that their team were about to conjure up a fairy tale that would rival anything from the home of football. But their grand plan nearly unraveled in their first game, ironically by the same hubris they accused the MLS of displaying. They faced amateur club, New York Freedoms. Interesting enough, we played a, a third division team in the first round and had to beat them in overtime. And they played a man down. <laughs> so, so they played a man down towards the end of the game. And uh, we, you know, we almost lost. But, but we were able to pull that one off. And after that, we went to the MLS teams. Although they had trailed 1-0 to 10 men, an extra time winner from Tilly meant they could finally get what they wanted a shot at the elite. That came in the form of defending MLS Cup and US Open Cup champions Chicago Fire, led by future national coach Bob Bradley. We played Chicago and uh, Bob Bradley was the coach and uh, they had won uh, the MLS Cup and their, um, their Shield and the US Open Cup the year before. So they were the best team in the country. It was an attritional encounter along with 45 fouls, a headlock tussle between Rochester Scott Schweitzer and Chicago's Lubos Kubik saw both players sent off. But the Rhinos prevailed, thanks to a second-half Yari Alnut header and a heroic performance from the impregnable Onstad in goal. While Bradley bristled, Pat was beaming. You know, that was a brawl. That's the only way I could put it. It was a brawl. Uh, we played soccer, but there's a little more physical. Bradley didn't shake my hand after they, they, they lost. <laughs> which is typical of him. He's got a lot of passion, you know, and, and, he's, and he is a great coach. <laughs> but he doesn't—he definitely does not like to lose. <laughs> With Chicago fire extinguished, next came Dallas Byrne, another former US Open Cup champion. But the backlash from the MLS had already begun. While Bradley sulked, Dallas head coach David Durr described Rochester as 11 Dennis Rodmans, alluding to the controversial basketballer Infamous for his ability to agitate his opponents. Phil Jackson may be enjoying the fact that uh, Dennis Rodman has gotten into the heads of the Seattle players. But Rochester translated the jibe into an endorsement, 
frustrating Dallas before pinching a goal in the 71st minute. As over 10,000 fans at Frontier Field prepared to celebrate another scalp, MLS top goalscorer Jason Kreiss forced the game into extra time with an 85th minute equaliser. Undeterred, Pat's team of Rodmans showed that even frustrators can flourish, as fullback Michael Kim scored the winner in extra time. Any trash talking is not going to throw us off, said defender Tim Hardy after the game, but the shade throwing continued. This time, it concerned the Rochester pitch. Goalscorer Kreiss was among the post-match dissenters. Jason Kreiss was on the Dallas team and he said, well, wait until these guys get on a bigger field because our, our home field was a little smaller uh, than the typical soccer field. Pat is being diplomatic. For what Kreiss actually said was, Rochester will get their butts beat on a real field. So I think our field dimensions were 110 by uh, 69. So, you know, it was a little tighter. And we knew how to plan our field. There was enough bitching going on that they'd come in with the attitude, oh, well, we got to plan a baseball diamond. I mean, I had, we had Cruyff, uh, Best, uh, you know, Pele all playing on baseball diamonds in the 80s. <laughs> and you guys are bitching about this. Crisis theory would be put to the test in the semifinal played on neutral ground at Virginia Beach Sportsplex. Their opponents would be Columbus Crew, owned by MLS founder Lamar Hunt and featuring high-profile strikers Stern John and Brian McBride. Columbus knew a win over their lower league opposition would see them rewarded with a cup final at their brand new stadium, the first soccer-specific stadium in the USA. With 20,000 seats, it was the sort of infrastructure Rochester had long yearned for, and it proved the perfect reason to spoil the crew's plans. And, they, and we were a, te- a fighting team, so I mean, they, they had some spunk to them. And, uh, you know, just to hear some of the guys that were MLS thinking that, you know, we weren't deserving of it, you know, inspired them to want to win. We always took the approach that there was some fixing in regards to who played who. So that was a motivation factor for the players. I mean, I told them, look at, you know what? They put us against Columbus because they figure Columbus is going to win this. They're going to be playing in their home stadium. A recent hurricane left a gust in its wake so strong that Onstad's goal kicks were landing only 30 yards away. Nonetheless, Pat surprised his team by choosing to play against the 45-mile-an-hour winds in the first half. So sure enough, there was a 45-mile-an-hour wind. There was like a semi-hurricane in that area. And it was going north to south. And um, my captain came up to me before the game and he goes, what what direction do you want to take? And I said, well, let's go against the wind the first half. And my theory was that, you know, MLS teams typically took it easy in the first 20 to 25 minutes. And and I figured we'd weather this storm in the last 20 and if we got out of the half at 0-0 we'd probably win but Columbus came in the second half against the wind and they were killing us with four minutes to go Columbus were leading 2-1 and on course for their dream final and then with 20 minutes to go they just couldn't run anymore the wind had you know had taken a toll on them a deflected Scott Schweitzer free kick in the 86th minute suggested that fortune was favoring the Rhinos before a thundering 90th minute hit from left back Tim Hardy with his wrong foot confirmed it we had a a left-sided defender tim hardy that came up the field about the 35 yard mark he cut into the uh in inside the field and shot it with his right foot i mean he couldn't even shoot with his right foot (laughs) let alone this thing sailed right into the upper corner the opposite side of the goal and we win you know we win with two minutes to go and then we we just held them off um 
it wasn't too difficult to hold them off. The wind was doing it. But so we we won that game uh, that that night. And as a matter of fact, Tim Tim's wife had just given birth to a baby that night, so it kind of inspired him. So we got to the final, and when we got to the final, we said, "Hey, we're we're, we're getting here. We're winning it. We've already been here once." It'll be interesting to see whether the Rhinos opt for a conservative approach right at the start here. Change your foot. David Vaudrill, the dodgy ball, and handball against Darren Telly. With MLS hopes of a sold-out new stadium dashed by the stubborn Rhinos, few neutrals joined the contingent from Rochester on the day of the final. In front of just 5,000 fans and 400 miles from home, Rochester faced a Colorado Rapids team who ruthlessly dumped out A-League's Charleston Battery 3-0 in the semi-final. The odds, again, were against Rochester. But they had belief and a Rodman-esque relish for mind games. And, they, you know, the guys did little things like we had, uh, everybody was talking about our our, uh, our field and how it played a part in it. Uh, so we, one of the trainers cut out a piece of the infield of the baseball diamond and brought it to Columbus. And all the all the guys all the guys uh, walked on it before they went out went out to the to the field. We played a different way, you know. We were a little more defensive in the first half, but we came out with about sixty five minute mark. I made some subs. I mean, at halftime, I told them, "Look, it, we're going to hold them off a little bit more, and then we're going to go for it." With chances scarce, the manager made his move on the hour as Tilly made way for Miller. Pat hadn't always favoured the striker known as Deadly Doug preferring the graft provided by the Englishman over the pace of the indoor veteran. But now he decided it was time for Brisk over Braun. You know, there was a guy, this Doug Miller, that I hardly ever played at that time, was the fastest guy we had on our team. And we were just sitting back and we couldn't get him behind him. Darren Tilly was a a big, lanky Englishman that played up front. But, you know, he gave his heart and defended... You know, anything he could possibly. He was running all over the place because we played with one forward up top. <laughs> and so I decided, you know, I got to get some legs in there. And I put in this guy that nobody was expecting me to put in. And sure enough, he scores the first goal. Still Bill Sedgwick. And there's Doug Miller. Will he be here? Oh, yes! Deadly Doug lives up to his name. Within three minutes, Pat's gamble had paid off. Miller found space in the box to squeeze a shot under Ian Fewer's legs in the 66th minute. Rochester had 24 minutes to survive the Colorado onslaught and create US soccer history. To 1-0 to Rochester. Sawatsky for Colorado. The choruses of joy from the Rochester fans echoing around Columbus Crew Stadium. But as the team who'd finished fourth in the MLS pushed for an equaliser, Rochester's counter-attacks menaced. straight to trouble foyer but the guy got colorado now with all guns blazing well not a great save but a very good one in particular because it bounced right in front of him and in the 90th minute just as rhinos fans began a rendition of across from substitute carlos savala found Olnut lurking unmarked in the box primed to pull the trigger play for the corner kick then but the chance is on 
All its cool finish sealed the final horror of this MLS nightmare. Rochester had created history, but despite the narrative that the MLS may have liked to portray, it wasn't all down to luck. Fortune may help in creating one upset, maybe two, but defeating four top flight teams on the way to victory? That takes talent and a belief that they'd found their level. So, you know, like I said, there's things that happen that, you know, that were kind of fortunate and, and lucky, but, uh, you know, the guys had the desire and they certainly had the ability. After the game, goal scorer Yari Alnod reflected the confidence of champions, a group of players who felt they were more than capable of beating MLS teams every week. I'm just really excited, you know, we came here, we battled, we beat four MLS teams and uh, we're champions. In the years that followed, many of the 1999 winning side finally got their shot at the MLS. Onstad was even twice named Goalkeeper of the Year, but it wasn't in a Rhino shirt. Despite finally getting a purpose-built stadium, further league championships, including as recently as 2015, and the MLS swelling to 26 teams, Rochester was still overlooked, even as former A-League rivals got the nod. You know, when you look at Montreal, Vancouver, Portland, Seattle... You know, all these teams are part of our league. They were also part of the North American Soccer League when I was playing. Uh, most of the people involved with those teams are people that I've played against, you know, or coached against. So, I mean, you know, Rochester's always been part of that landscape, but it's the only team that was kind of left behind. Over 20 years on, Rochester remained the only second-tier side to claim the U.S. Open Cup in the MLS era. Sacramento Republic came closest to repeating the feat in 2022 as the USL outfit saw of Sporting Kansas City, San Jose Earthquakes and LA Galaxy to make the final before losing 3-0 to a ruthless Orlando FC. Rochester's record almost outlasted the club itself. In 2017, with crowds dwindling due to the unpopular location of the new stadium, the club announced it was going on hiatus. For sports clubs, particularly in the States, that's a direction that usually only ends one way. But... In June 2021, Rochester made a surprise announcement Rochester that made Rhinos news around the world. Comeback with a big name from the world of soccer to help. The Rhinos announcing this morning, English Premier League soccer star Jamie Vardy has bought a small stake in our local club. The Rhinos have been on a four-year hiatus and Vardy hopes to help revive the soccer scene in Rochester. With Premier League legend Jamie Vardy joining existing owners David and Wendy Dwogan, developments continue at pace. Rochester is no longer a raging rhino, as the club has been rebranded to Rochester New York Football Club, complete with slick new colours and badge. The club's new sporting director is Lee Tucker, who'd previously headed up Vardy's successful V9 Academy. The manager is the former Nottingham Forest assistant, Bruno Baltazar. The hope is to build a new stadium in a more family-friendly area of the city, and there's even talk of a Netflix documentary series. And the best news? Rochester's club president, is a man who still dreams of seeing the team in the MLS. It is, of course, 
Pat Oakley. You know, looking at Jamie Vardy's history and, and his past and how he came from a humble beginning in a sense that, uh, you know, he came from, from working in a factory to playing in the premiership. And he also looked looked at it from our perspective, uh, being the underdog and winning the, the Open Cup is something similar. So he wanted, he saw us as an opportunity, not just because uh, we were a team that he could pick up but or be part of, but also... Uh, the vision and the dream of uh, giving opportunities to players that may be in a similar situation as he is. Um, so, uh, you know, his global reach, obviously something was appealing to us and his story certainly was appealing to us as well. So it was a, a good uh, match made in heaven, so to speak. Along with a new slogan, believe impossible. Rochester returned to the pitch in 2022 coming fourth in the Eastern Conference of the MLS Pro League. The third tier of the US Pyramid is the home of the next generation of MLS stars. That's because of its 21 teams, 20 of them are MLS reserve teams. And so, Rochester is once again cast as Major League Soccer's worst nightmare. For if they still can't join them, then they'll be looking to beat them all over again. Thank you for listening to Journeys with MPLH. This episode was written and narrated by Alexis James, produced by me, Joseph Fordham, with artwork by Maria Markovic. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the follow button and be sure to share with your friends. We'll see you next time.